You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to our live stream Bible study. Again, make your way over to Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. And I want to talk to you again about God's invitation to believe. If you're like me, every time we turn on any kind of media, we find ourselves having these experts break down the news of every detail regarding the coronavirus and the effects that it's having on our world. These experts are, are, are scientists, they're infectious disease specialists, they're respiratory specialists. We have biologists and economists that are weighing in on all of this. Really smart people that have information that we need. Information that can keep us from having our lives destroyed by a virus. But the one thing they all have in common is that they want us to believe them. They want us to look at the data. They want us to look at the facts. All of the facts that they have presented about the virus. And they want us to believe those facts and respond to those facts as they deem necessary. Well, God works the same way when it comes to sin. When it comes to sin and the effects of sin upon our life, which has indeed infected the entire globe from Adam to this very day. And he lays out all the information that we need regarding sin and the effects of sin in his word. Information that will help us and keep us from having a, a, a virus called sin destroy our lives. And he wants us to believe his facts. He wants us to believe him. Thus, they, you know, we, we look at all of the data and we look at all of the facts that are presented in his word regarding sin and regarding the effects of sin. And he says, Lance, I want you to believe this. I want you to respond to these facts as I deem necessary. Number one, he wants us to understand that every one of us is affected by sin. In Romans 3.23, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he wants us to understand that there's an effect of sin upon our lives. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that he cannot hear. But here it is. But your iniquities, or your sin, here's the effects of sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Another fact. He wants us to know that he has provided a cure for sin. Right now throughout the world, there, is, there are a lot of people looking desperately for a cure, for a vaccine to this coronavirus. Well, God wants us to know as it relates to sin 
and the effects of sin that separate us from him, both down here and throughout eternity, he wants us to know that he has provided a cure for sin. John chapter 3, it simply says, For God so loved the world. God so loved a world that is affected by sin. A world that is separated from him by sin. That he gave his only begotten son. And here it is. That whoever would believe in him would not perish. Would not live eternally apart from God. Would not perish but have everlasting life. Number four, God wants us to know that his cure for sin is a free gift. In Romans 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God wants us to believe in his solution for sin. God has invited us to believe in the facts just as they have unfolded. Again, so important are these facts. John 3.16, again, for God so loved this world, separated from him by sin, that he gave his only begotten son. Well, what does that mean? That means that, 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 that God would have a plan that would involve his son. A plan that would involve his son taking on flesh in order to die for the sin of the world. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, speaking of the Messiah in the future. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the word child there speaks of the humanity of the Messiah. The word son there speaks of the deity of the coming Messiah. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 10, verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Another fact. Jesus took on a body in order to become a sacrifice or atonement for our sin. In Hebrews 9.22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, Knowing this, that you are not redeemed by corruptible things or with corruptible things like a precious metal, like silver or like gold, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In the Old Testament, we have over 20 prophecies that speak directly, fact after fact, that God wants us to believe. Fact after fact, prophecy after prophecy regarding the death of the Messiah, the death of Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, it tells us that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And we saw that unfold as we went through the account of Good Friday, last Friday night, where Judas, of course, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. 
In Psalm 35, verse 11, it says that he would be accused by false witnesses. And again, we saw these false witnesses come along in the New Testament narrative on, on Jesus' life when he was being tried to be crucified and they were trumping up all of these charges that were not true. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it says he was spat upon and he would be struck. And we saw that happening beginning with the trial before Annas, then to Caiaphas, then, 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 then to Pilate. And, and we knew that he would be scourged. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, he'd be crucified with criminals. Psalm 22, verse 18 through that chapter, it talks about crucifixion. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even ever introduced to society. There it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. And they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they did cast lots. Again, on Friday night, we went through all of those details surrounding the death of Jesus from his arrest in Gethsemane to the trials, to the scourging, and to the crucifixion. Jesus was placed on the cross at 9 a.m. Matthew tells us that from... From that time, from 9 a.m., from the third hour, what they called that, to the sixth hour, which is noon, that, that, that there was darkness all over the land. The Romans have in their writings, in the Roman archives, they talk about this darkness that came upon all of the Roman Empire that day. Not only was there darkness all over the land, but there was also an earthquake in the Jewish writings, in the Talmud, it, it, it talks about this earthquake. The great historian, Josephus, talks about this earthquake in his writings as well. In Mark's gospel, it says that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Many of the centurions around the cross, they, they saw these events and they freaked out and they believed and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Again, God gives us all of these facts so that we might believe and respond to his facts as he deems necessary. The veil tearing would have had a radical impact on the priest that served there. As we go through the book of Acts, we see that many of the priests were actually converted and, and they believed in Jesus. Jesus would hang on that cross for six hours. In the ninth hour at 3 p.m., he would cry out to the Father, to Telestine, it is finished. And he would yield up his spirit. God wanted us to know all of the facts. He wanted us to know that that was his son, that his son was God. He wanted us to know that Jesus was in complete control of yielding up his life. Only deity can do that. And God wants us to look at these facts so that we might believe. It would also say that Jesus would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53, verse 9, out of the Old Testament. And we move forward into the New Testament, and we look at, at Matthew's account in chapter 27, and we see this very wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in John chapter 3 by night. And they, they asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate gave them the body. They wrapped the body of Jesus. They anointed the body of Jesus 
and they took the body of Jesus and they laid him in a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had prepared for his own family. It was a tomb that no one had ever used. There was a stone that was rolled across that, that tomb and it was sealed. Another fact that God wants us to consider and wants us to believe is that three days following Jesus' death, he would rise from the dead. Jesus himself made this claim. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, he says, Listen, they will condemn me to death, and they will deliver me to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock me, and they're going to scourge me, and they're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I am going to rise again. It's interesting because later on in Matthew's gospel, it says the day following Jesus' death that the chief priest and the Pharisees, they would go to Pilate and they would say, Sir, remember why this guy was still alive? And they labeled Jesus a deceiver. They said, this deceiver said that after three days, after he'd be put to death, after three days, he would rise. And so we, we request that that the tomb be made secure until at least the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal away his body and tell the people, indeed, he is risen from the dead. And man, that deception is going to be worse than his first deception. Pilate said, you have your guard, go your way, make it secure. And they did. In Acts chapter 1, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us the account of Jesus' life. And then in Acts chapter 1, it starts off with the account of what happened following Jesus' resurrection. And it says there in verse 3 that Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. After Jesus' resurrection, he, he remained on the earth for 40 days, proving to everybody, fact after fact, witness after witness, that, that he is God, that he is alive. He presented himself by many infallible proofs. He was being seen. In the Greek, that Greek word is ophthalmai, and, and we get our, our word ophthalmology from that word. It means to just to see. Jesus was being eyeballed by person after person. He was being stared at by person after person. He was back from the dead and people could not take their eyes off of him. Again, God giving us these facts so that we might believe in these facts and respond to them as he deems necessary. During these 40 days, Jesus would also minister to his disciples. He would seek them out, and he would reveal himself to them in an undeniable, dependable, reliable way. He was leaving no doubt in their minds that he was truly alive. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus was seen by Cephas, that's, that's Peter, then by the twelve. 
After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Many of them, he says, are dead, but some still remain alive. And he says, after that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then he would say, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one that is born out of due time. Again, Jesus revealed himself to the people following his resurrection so that they would believe. They would believe in who he is. They would believe in why he came. And they would receive what he came to offer. And seeing Jesus raised from the dead caused some of these who were deserting from him to become believers and followers and loyal ambassadors for him from that day forward. You see, God has invited us to believe because in believing, our life can be radically transformed by God. The fact that these apostles who were fearful and cowering and skeptic, now they became bold and they became this powerful proof of the, of the evidence of the resurrection. <laughs> That's what facts will do when you believe them. This is what the empty tomb is all about. God gave us all of these facts so that we would believe. God has given us a personal invitation to look at the evidence, to look at the facts of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and yesterday, his resurrection, so that we would believe. In our Bibles, which you have turned to Mark chapter 16, we have some of these facts surrounding the resurrection. It says in verse 1 that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. It was very early in the morning on the first day of the week. And they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Will you roll away the stone from the door? Or who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away. And it was a very large stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe and sitting on the right side. And they were justifiably alarmed. But this, this angel, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Notice, see the place where they laid him. God wants us to recognize this open invitation. The tomb is wide open. Come in and see so that we might believe. He's not here. He's risen. It's the Resurrection Sunday. It's the third day following the death of Jesus. The very day that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. And in Jewish thinking, they reported or regarded, excuse me, any part of one day as a full day. Friday, Jesus was crucified and buried day one. 
Saturday makes day two. Sunday, now the first day of the week, is day three. And so the girls come, and they're bringing spices, expecting to see the body that they might further apply these spices upon. But as they arise, the stone has been rolled away. They enter the tomb, and, and, and they, they see this, this angel standing there. He's on the right side of the tomb, and, and they begin to freak out. And the angel again says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by this. This is part of God's plan. This is all part of God's solution to sin. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. <laughs> He's risen. He's not here. But, but eyeball this. The word see, Ido, means that. See with perception is what that means in the Greek. We would use the term, hey, lean over and check it out. Check it out for yourself. Again, God is giving us all of these facts so that we would believe. Again, this is God's universal invitation to check out the irrefutable evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And in verse 7, notice, the angel tells the girls to get the word out. Go, tell the disciples. And I like this, he references Peter, Mr. Denial. He denied him three times. Oh, and Peter too. Tell Peter. Go tell him that he is going before them to Galilee and there they will see him. Why did the angel send these ladies to tell others? Well, again, witnesses are a great way to bring credibility to the facts that you are wanting to prove. Witnesses to the facts will help others believe the facts. So go tell. Go tell the disciples. Go tell those who walked with him and who, who knew him and who followed him but deserted him when he was being crucified. Go tell them that he is raised from the dead. He is no longer in this tomb. We have some of those accounts in the other gospel writings and John's gospel. We know that the girls come to Peter and John and John chapter 20 in that first part. And, and it says that, th th that they ran. Peter and John ran to the tomb. And they heard this news from the women. And, and, and Peter, it says, he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths kind of lying off to the side. And, and the headpiece that was around Jesus' head, it was, it was just neatly folded and set off to the side by itself. And, of course, that was evidence to a bodily resurrection. You got to have to have some hands in order to, to fold that headpiece in and set that there. And again, God was like, I want you to see the facts. Consider the facts because I want you to believe in what I have provided for you in order to save you from your sins. Look, see, but, but see to believe. It says, John also went in, and indeed, he saw and he believed. Later on that day in John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 11, Mary would come back to the tomb. And she would stand outside the tomb, and, and, and she was weeping. She loved Jesus. 
The tomb is now empty. And as, as she was coming back, she sees two angels. One was sitting at the, the, the area where Jesus was, was laid, where his head would have been. The other one was sitting where his feet would have been. And, 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 and basically, they're like, to Mary, why, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. And she didn't quite recognize who it was at first, but Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? And, and, and she, supposing him again to be a gardener. I don't know what that meant. I always like to laugh. Maybe Jesus showed up first in a flannel shirt and a straw hat or something. I don't know. But she just thought he was the gardener. And, and she said to him, Sir, if you've carried away my Lord, man, please tell me where you have laid him because I just want to take him away. And it was at that time where Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary, this is where it becomes personal. Mary, and she turned around, and at that time she recognized him and said the, the word Rabboni, or, or master teacher. What happened? She saw and she believed. Later on that day, it says in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus would come and appear to Peter on his own. What a heart-to-heart -heart that would have been. Later on in the evening, he, is, he, he appears on a road in the afternoon to these two disciples that were heading back to their home, which was in Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, it says that they were walking and they were discussing all the things that were happening the week before in Jerusalem during Passover. And, and, and as they were talking, you know, it says that they had, had, had placed their, their, their lives under this man from, from Nazareth and they label him as a prophet, a man mighty indeed before God and all the people. And right as they were talking, it says that Jesus just, just sort of steps in and, and interrupts their conversation. And as they do, they look at him, and one says in verse 18, you know, as Jesus looks at these guys and says, what are you guys talking about? What is all this stuff you're talking about? One says, are, are you the only stranger? Are you like a foreigner in the area of Jerusalem? You, you don't know what has happened over these last few days? Jesus says, well, pray tell. Tell me what's been happening. I'd like, like you to fill me in. And as he's just walking with them, and, and they began to, to tell Jesus about Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't recognize who he was. He held back his identity from them at that particular point. And they began to say, listen, he was a, 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 just a prophet that we were following. He was mighty indeed. He healed the sick. Imagine the stories they could have told. He delivered the demons. He raised people from the dead. Man, he was mighty in word. What, what studies came to their mind? What profound things that Jesus said to the religious leaders or to those who were hurting or the outcast? What was it that, that they recalled hearing Jesus say that they would repeat back to Jesus as they walked along that road to Emmaus? But then they would say in verse 20, yeah, our, our chief priest and... And our rulers, they, they delivered him 
to be condemned to death and they crucified him. And they said, we were hoping, past tense, that it was he who was going to redeem Jerusalem. And today's the third day. Well, he's been dead for three days now. And Jesus then responded with these words. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. You see, you had all the facts. You heard them from me. You knew the word and what it said about the Messiah. But you were slow of heart to believe. And that might describe some of you that are listening to this study right now. You've been slow in your heart to believe. You've had friends or relatives that quite possibly have shared Jesus with you or tried to. But maybe because of a, of a hardened heart or a distant heart, you're like, I'm not ready to hear that. But to you, to you that would have that kind of disposition towards God, understand he still sees sin and the effects of sin upon your life. He sees the separation from you. And he loves you. And it's just like him to step into your world as you're walking away from the facts and step into your world in order to win over your heart so that you might believe. In these next few moments, I would just invite you, if that is you, to just open your heart to God. Open your heart to his word. Open your heart to these facts. If you've been having a difficult time believing, <laughs> you're, you're a good company. We've all been there. The disciples have been there. There's a time when the disciples themselves would even say, Lord, help our unbelief. That's a good prayer. If that is you right now, I would encourage you as we move forward and begin to wind down this study that you would Ask the Lord, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Jesus steps into their world and he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ had to suffer these things and enter into glory? As we, we look at all the scriptures, isn't that what the scriptures were saying would happen to the Messiah? And then it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, everything we've been learning this week during Passion Week, going all the way back to last Sunday where we considered who Jesus was as a king in that triumphal entry, to who he was on Monday, the Monday and the Tuesday, and even the Wednesday before he would face that cross. The conversations that he had with his disciples in that upper room when he, when he instituted communion, to his, his leaving that upper room and going to the garden and praying to the Father. 
and asking him if there's any way this, this plan of salvation, this cup, could be removed from me. If there's any other way that man could be saved, go for it. But nevertheless, not your will, but my, not my will, but your will be done. And it was the Father's will for me and for you and for everyone listening into this broadcast where he looks at sin and the effects of sin and he looks at his son and he says, you take on flesh and you go to that cross and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. You're going to suffer. You're going to bleed. You are going to die. But that is how I am going to deal with mankind's sin because I don't want to be apart from them down here on earth or apart from them throughout eternity. And the son, out of love for you and out of love for me, he left that garden and he went to that cross and he died on that cross. Everything we studied this week about the life of Jesus is written in his word. And Jesus, he points these guys back to the word. He points them back to the irrefutable facts. I'm going to point you back to things that were written hundreds of years before they ever even happened. But notice, guys, they now have happened. And they have been fulfilled, Jesus would say, in me. Later on, he would take some bread with them, a little pit stop on the road, and he, he blesses it, and he breaks it. And it says that, that when he did that, their eyes were opened, or they believed. And there's no doubt that, that when they opened their heart back up to the word of God, and they began to consider the Son of God, that as they looked close enough and they were surrendered in their hearts enough that they saw something that clicked in their hearts. Maybe it was the wounds in his hands or just, it might have even been just the tears in his eyes. <laughs> they believed. They believed. And they would head back to Jerusalem. And a bit later that day, they would find where the disciples were hiding. There'd be 11 of them, all of them minus Judas. Well, actually that first setting, there was 10 of them because Judas was gone. He had plumb, went out and hung himself. And we know that Thomas was not with that original group when they were meeting there in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. But it says that those two disciples came back and they met with the rest of the disciples and they began to, to tell them what, what had happened, that we saw Jesus and we had this conversation. And as they were talking to all of these disciples in that room, it says that Jesus just enters the room. He shows up and he says, peace be with you. There in chapter 24, verse 37, he says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts and then the facts. God shows us the facts so that we might believe. Behold, he says, my hands and my feet. 
Check it out. You think I'm a ghost? <laughs> I'm not a ghost. Look it. Handle me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones that have been pierced. See, I have. And I love this. Because Jesus does the same thing with those who might have walked with him for a long time but are struggling in their faith. He seeks them out and he reveals himself to them in an undeniable way. He invites them to, to re-examine who he is, re-examine what he has done for them, re-examine his love, the extent of his love. Each time we think about the nail prints in Jesus' hands, his feet, or his side, we must be mindful of the extent of his love for us. Oh, how we need to re-examine that over and over. And that's what communion for us Christians is all about. He invites us to embrace him. Handle me and see, for spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Take a deeper look at the irrefutable facts to my resurrection. In verse 44 of Luke 24, he said to them, these are the words which I was speaking to you while I was still with you. Those things I was telling you about me that must happen. Those things that were written in the law, in Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. And it says that he opened their understanding. And that's something God can do right now. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, working through the word of God right now, if you will just open up your heart to these facts and believe, he will open up your understanding. And then he said, thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for Christ to have suffered and rise from the dead the third day. And it was at that point that they would believe. Eight days following the resurrection, in John chapter 20, we have the account now with the disciples, but this time Thomas is part of that gathering. And, and it says as they were gathered again, and, and Thomas with them, that J Jesus came to the doors. They were shut, and he just stood in the midst. Man, I don't know, he, he has a, a way of, of, of having a grand entry, not using a door and just showing up. And then again, he says, peace to you. And Thomas, he said to Thomas directly, Thomas, Thomas, reach over here. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Here, put your hand in my side. And then he said this, do not be unbelieving, Thomas, but believing. Be a believer. And Thomas answered and said at that time, my Lord and my God. And, and Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who, are, who, are, who haven't seen me and believe. Jesus was incredibly moved by, by Thomas and disciples who, who saw him there in his body, in his resurrected body. But he's like, oh, how blessed are those. Talking about people like you and I 
who won't actually see him because Jesus will have ascended into heaven. But blessed are those who will look at the facts, the irrefutable facts that the Father has given us about his solution to sin. Blessed are those who see and believe. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is, listen, I'm having a hard time believing. I need more evidence. Unbelief is, I won't believe no matter what the evidence is. Thomas had a problem with doubt. He needed more evidence. Earlier he had said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my fingers where the, the, the spikes were put through Jesus' flesh, I will not believe. And it was almost as if Thomas was saying, look it, I, I want to see him like you guys are saying you've seen him. But I will not until I do. I don't want a second-hand experience with Jesus. And some of you listening today, maybe you've marveled at a grandparent or a parent or a friend who has this, this amazing experience with Jesus. And they've shared him with you. They've talked to you about him. It maybe even trips you out that they talk to, to, to you about Jesus like they got a personal relationship with him. They say things like that and it kind of spins your bearings. These are the facts. Those people were sinners separated from God. They consider the same facts if they are believers that you are considering right now quite possibly as a non-believer. But somewhere along the line, they opened their heart up to those facts. Somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit began to take the truth of God's word, those facts in the heart of those sinners who were infected by the virus of sin. And the Holy Spirit began to do something, a spiritual work called spiritual regeneration. He brought the life of God in them as they were believing, as they were trusting what God's word said about Jesus. As it says in the book of James, oh, receive with meekness, humble yourself, the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. Salvation is not the result of man. It is not the result of, of going to a church. It is not the result of, of, of being a member of a church. It is not the result of some sort of baptism of man. It is not the result of serving or giving or doing some sort of work Salvation is a work of God. He saw the sin in our lives. The sin and its effect upon humanity. And he loved us enough to provide the cure. And the cure was his son. And as we put our faith in Jesus, our faith, again, is only as good as the subject in which it is placed. If you have put your faith in a cow or in some carven image or some statue, that, that cow, that carven image, and that statue cannot forgive your sin. That statue, that carved image, that cow could never do anything regarding sin and sin's effects upon your life. Your creator, he's the one who has had a plan. 
The plan of redemption that was formed before the foundations of the earth. A plan that involved his son taking on flesh for you. To die on a cross and to shed his blood to forgive you. To remove that sin so that you can have atonement or at one meant with God. And in that moment, you open your heart to him and receive him. You too will have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we meet him on the spiritual plane. When we are born into this world, we are a dichotomy. We are body and we are soul. The moment that we are born again, we become a trichotomy. A body, a soul, and now our spirit is made alive. As God's spirit comes in us, and we are born again. We are born of the spirit. Just as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, as he was like tripping out on who Jesus was, Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus, (laughs) no man is ever going to inherit the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus tripped out on that. What does that mean? i got to like climb back up into my mother's womb. And Jesus is like, no, that's a, a physical birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But Nicodemus, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say, you must be born again. And that's the heart of God. Is to deal with the penalty of sin. And the separation That sin has created between you and God. And he has has so desired to have a personal, intimate relationship with you. He, He has so desired that, that he sent his son to give you that. As we look at these facts, we know that, that there are many facts that we have considered Here in this Resurrection Sunday, this morning, fact one, we are all infected by sin. We're all sinners in need of salvation. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Guilty. Guilty. Fact two, our sin separates us from God as we studied there in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Fact three, God so loved the world, the world separated by sin, that he gave his only begotten son. John 3, verse 16. Fact four, Jesus took on a body in order to become a sacrifice, in order to provide atonement or atonement for our sin. The next fact is that his sacrifice would involve the shedding of his blood by way of crucifixion. Fact number five, he would be buried, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Fact number six, our salvation depends on our putting faith in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says that if we confess with our mouth, and we believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
In just a moment, I'm going to lead a very simple prayer for you out there who are not right with God. For you out there who need God's cure for sin. For you out there who are opening your heart and you're beginning to believe and you're ready to now receive God's cure for sin, which is his son, Jesus Christ. I'll pray with you in just a minute. But this is what's part of that. God needs to hear your confession, the confession from your heart. Fact number six. It is not possible to be a Christian if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not possible to be a Christian if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, who died and was buried and rose from the dead for you. Paul says it's putting faith in him, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God, who rose from the dead evidencing that he is God. We find salvation in him and him alone. Without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. Jesus said to Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, these are the words of Jesus himself, he who believes in me, though he dies, even when he dies, he is going to live eternally. And whoever believes in me, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her, the question to all of us, do you believe this? God's invitation to believe. And Mary got it right. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God has power over death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he has power to forgive sins. It proves that he has power to save. It proves that he has power to give us eternal life. Lastly, John would close off his gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30, and he would say, look, there are many other things that Jesus did that I could have, have wrote in this book. The purpose of John writing his gospel was to give us eight accounts, eight miracles that Jesus did proving that he is God. He showed us Jesus doing things that only God could do. And as he would wind down his epistle, he would say this, and I quote, but these things which have been written, referring to Jesus and what he did to prove that he is God, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior, the Son of God, and that believing that, you would have life. He uses the word zoe, spiritual, eternal life, in his name. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we close out our service this morning? Oh, Father, thank you for seeing sin and the effects of sin and doing something about it. Thank you, Jesus, 
Thank you for loving us enough that you would, you would, you, you would leave heaven and as God his spirit, you would, you would take on flesh and you would have this miraculous conception and you would be born of this virgin birth and you would live a sinless life. And as you would hit the age of some 30 years old, you'd begin your ministry and you would begin to claim that you are the promised Messiah. You would begin to, to do miracles that only God can do, evidencing the fact that you are God. You would say that you and the Father are one. You would say that he who has seen the Father has seen me. You would say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one would ever be able to go to the Father, to heaven, but through you. I would ask as we are in our homes bowing our heads, and, and opening our hearts to our creator, our savior, and our soon coming king. I don't know what or where you are on this journey of faith. I don't know what you've been told about Jesus, what you've been taught about Jesus. I don't know what you have put your faith in up until this point. But this morning... As you've heard God's fact, fact after fact after fact about his solution to sin. And you've come to realize that that is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. The one who was born of that virgin birth. That one who lived the sinless life. That one who died on the cross and was buried and rose from the dead. And you realize this morning that that is God's solution to sin. And you're like, I want that solution. If that's you, and this is the day for you to believe, this is the day where you will respond to the facts that God has presented in his word about his son, and he has required us. He is asking us to respond by accepting him. And you're at that place. And you're ready to say, it is time for me to embrace Jesus. Or quite possibly, you're, you're, you're one of those people who you've walked away from the Lord. You might consider yourself like the prodigal son. And, and, and man, it's been a while since you have talked to God, since you've followed Jesus, since you've worshipped him, since you've read his word. Since you've been in fellowship with him, you, you, you've been distant from him and you miss him. And this morning, man, the Holy Spirit has grabbed the hold of your heart and you're like, man, it is time to just rededicate my life to Jesus Christ. Man, this is for you as well. Whatever your need might be, I'm going to lead a very simple prayer because sometimes people don't know what to pray. But, but as I as I say these words, I want you to express these words through your heart to the Father. He's listening to you right now. Pray this prayer after me. Say, Father, I thank you for giving me, for providing me a solution to sin in my life. 
I realize that sin has separated me from you. Say that to him. Pray this to him. I realize that there is a wage to sin. And that is separation from you. But it also says there's the gift of God. And that is eternal life through your son. And right now in my home or wherever you're at, just tell, tell Jesus. Say, Jesus, I do believe in you. I believe that you are God. I believe that you took on flesh. I believe that you died in that flesh. I believe you sacrificed your life and shed your, your body and your blood for me. And so I ask you, Jesus, just talk to him right now. Say, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. Jesus, I, I ask you to wash me clean, to remove the sin from my life that separates me from God. I, I, I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life and save me. Be my Savior and my Lord. Ask him right now. Ask him to, to fill you with his spirit. And if you've prayed that, that simple prayer, I want you to embrace everything that Jesus is and everything that he offers. And Father, we want to close out our time by thanking you for an amazing week. Thank you for any that you saved today, for all of those that you've saved throughout all of the services. Thank you for the, the rededications. Thank you for the renewing in our lives and just the refreshing and the revival that we sense that you are bringing to the church. We ask that the church across America and the church across the globe, pray with me, saints. We pray for revival, man. <laughs> we pray we would never be the same. We pray that you would awaken your church that we would be in love with you, Jesus, in a way like we've never been in love with you before. We pray that we would not be ashamed, that we would not be too busy, that we would not be distracted, that we would not buy into what the world has sold to us and we have called our own, that we would let that go, that we would be set free from all of that, and that we would be on fire ambassadors that, that follow you and are in love with you and tell others about you. Oh, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly to your church for your bride that is waiting. And all that, that believe this, all that have prayed that, tell him right now you love him. Just say, I love you, Lord. And I thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, and in the church across this globe. May we look back on this season and say that we were part of the revival because we opened our hearts to the one who revived our souls. And we love you and we thank you and we pray this in Jesus, your name, amen and amen.